and welcome back to Tiny Voice Talks. And today, Tiny Voice is talking all about revolution. And when you hear my guests speak, you will understand why I have chosen that title. I am so excited that Carl Poupe has agreed to come on and talk to us. So hello, Carl. Hello, Toria. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I've come across you on Twitter and absolutely love what you're doing and what you're tweeting. But for all of those that haven't discovered you yet, who is Carl Poupe? Uh, who am I? Um, so, I, as I said, or you said, my name is Carl Poupe. I am an author, a teacher and a speaker. And I wrote a book called The Action Hero Teacher Classroom Management Made Simple in 2019. And it's all about how to engage our young people in the, uh, the uh, digital age. So um, I did that in 2019 and it's just gone on from strength to strength. I founded uh, the website actionheroteacher.com. Uh, actionheroteacher.com has a blog which won an award uh, by Vudio saying it's one of the uh, top 10 education um, blogs in the country. And I'm really proud of what, you know, the doors it's opened for me and for other people. And I talk to schools and organizations about how to get the best out of the young people. So yeah, that's me really, in a nutshell. That's amazing. And did you always want to be an action hero teacher? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So at the age of four, you went like, oh, one day I'm going to be an action hero teacher. Oh, no, 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 no. If I, told, if we, if I could speak to my 16-year-old self and say, one day, Carl, you're going to be a teacher, he would have fell on the floor laughing his head off, his teachers would have laughed their heads off as well. And then he'll be like, no way. There's no way that could be in my future. But uh, as we were saying earlier, life is a very, very strange thing. Never say never. Um, so I took a lot of twists, turns and bumps on the head to arrive where I am now. So what happened between your 16-year-old self and becoming a teacher then? How did, how did that happen where you suddenly found yourself sure. in charge of a class? Okay. So just, I'll give you the tweetable version for your audience. Um, Oh yeah, go for it. (laughs) So I hated education growing up, which is really, really surprising. I was one of those Mm -hmm. kids that was a cross between the class joker and just a bit of a mean kid. And there was a lot of things going on for me. Um, Now looking back, my older self, but um, I didn't really like it, education. Uh, When I was being, when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, I think they only made one type of teacher, which was the, you know, the general shouty you know listen to me and listen to me well you know that type of teacher so it was really hard for me being quite sarky and quite inquisitive um to really tolerate that so my mum sent me to uh so I'm from a place in East London called Barking um Mm. not the nicest of places it's probably really nice now but when I was growing up there it wasn't a very very nice place um so my mum being very very concerned about me didn't want me to fall into the wrong crowd and then put me into a like grammar school like a private school um outside mm-hmm. of barking but I still just wasn't really engaging I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life um I went to uni didn't enjoy that um I got a degree and then I ended up because I'm quite um I'm quite chatty I'm quite friendly I ended up doing a sales job um so I worked for a couple- what was your degree in out of interest my degree was in media uh, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and again, I didn't know what that was. Um, so I, you know, I was just like, when they asked me, what degree do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. I don't really, you know, I, I don't know. And they said, you know, what about media? And I said, oh, what do I study? Study films and all this type of stuff. Yeah, sign me up. 
Uh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> not the wisest decision I ever made. Um, but um, because I was I was quite good, uh, I, you know, people said I had the gift of the gap. I got into a couple of sales jobs and I ended up working for um, ITV at one point, yeah, the, new, uh, the television channel and British Telecom. But I always felt um, quite a bit empty. I was like, I'm doing this mm-hmm. job, but I'm not really doing anything. I, you know, I'm not giving back. I'm not helping anybody. So I'll, Did all your friends, though, think it was quite cool that you were working for like a TV company? They were, yeah, they, they thought it was really, really cool. Um, yeah. But, you know, it wasn't, I said, it's not as glamorous as you think it is. Again, because I had quite shouty bosses. Uh, I don't know you if see, I imagine red carpets here, you know, oh, dinners there. No, oh, not so oh, much. We, we were the grunts in the back. We were just the oh. guys in the office. We were, there was nothing really glamorous about our job. I mean, I did see Trevor McDonald once or twice walking around. But, you know, that was <laughs> it. I never got the chance to talk to him. It was like, do not talk to Sir Trevor McDonald. You know what I mean? I was like, okay. Yeah. My bosses were like, nah. So yeah. Um. I, then the Great Recession of two thousand and eight hit. Um. And I basically got the chance to uh come out of that um arena, and I was started in uh, youth work. I, I made music in my own time, my spare time, and I mm-hmm. did. And I basically bagged a job in a music studio. And the guy that kind of run the studio is like, do you realize that you know you're good with kids and stuff, and you can train to be a teacher. So I went through the um, further education route, lifelong learning route. Um, I started mm-hmm. uh, just as helping in the studio, became basically an assistant. Then I became a teacher, and then I ma- I became a NEETS coordinator, uh, which basically sorry, go go back. NEETS is what? Sorry, a NEETS coordinator. So a NEETS is a person that's not in employment, education, or training. So this is okay. um, alternative provision. So basically, these were the guys that were kicked out of school. And either didn't take their GCSEs or for whatever reason, couldn't take their GCSEs. Um, and I had to teach them. So I always said to the staff that wow. we are like the men in black or the people in black, <laughs> you say, the first and last line of defense, because these guys mm. were statistically 70% more likely to engage in antisocial behaviors, whether that's gangs, yeah. whether that's drugs, whether that's, you know, street violence. And if we did not get in, in any form of employment or uh, work, you know, their life chances were very bleak. So I was in charge of uh, developing the schemes of work, you know, looking at the lessons. And basically it was my project to kind of run with and and, and work. What an amazing work. job. And what a job to impact on so many people. It was a beautiful job, but because of austerity, um, the government basically, um, when austerity hit around 2014, mm-hmm. they just pulled funding. So all these types of wow. um, projects, a lot of the youth centres, a lot of you know these these interventions, were just cut. Um, unfortunately, oh you know, I found myself without a job. But luckily, because I've got a teaching, forgive the banging outside someone's building. Uh, luckily, because I've got a teaching qualification, um, I found myself in mainstream education, and mm-hmm. um, I was just quite surprised in terms of the challenges that a lot of teachers faced in terms of behaviour management. And a lot of the guys were like, you know, how do you do what you do? It's not because I'm magic. It's because basically I had a lot of training. Uh, I worked with the Child Adolescent Mental Health Services, CAMS, uh, Yacht Team, Youth Offending uh, youth offending Team, which is basically the police, um, Gang Matrix. And that after a while, I just said, you know what, let me put all this knowledge into a book. And that's how the Action Hero Teacher was born in 2019. Oh, wow. And so... Why do you think there are so many difficulties with behaviour management in school? Um, 
I think there's a number of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is talking to my colleagues about it. Um, mm. was, I believe I never went through the PGC route, but speaking to many, many people, it wasn't sufficient in terms of the behavior management they were given. One of my colleagues yeah. said they were given since literally like a week or two, a unit and talking about, okay, how do you get them to sit still? And that was kind of it. But, you know, when you walk into a classroom and you've got 30 eyes on you, you know, that's a unit, a one week unit is not really going to kind of help you. Um, mm-hmm. Another reason why I believe there's a lot of problems, not problems, but it's difficult is that the, the kids that we're teaching, you know, it's a completely new generation of kids. Um, they call it Generation Z. What and do you mean? Um, in terms of the generations, this generation is truly um, digital natives. This generation of kids that we're teaching were born with the internet. I can remember when the internet started, um, but these yeah. guys were born into it. And what I was saying uh, to, or what I say in my trainings is that the line between those that are in power and authority and the ordinary people is so slim now, okay? So, for example, um, if I wanted to right now, I can pick up my phone, I can tweet at Boris Johnson, you're a bloody idiot, I hate you, you're full, you know, your mum or mm. whatever. And, you know, there'll be, okay, there shouldn't be any repercussions, but there, there's little to no repercussions. So what I mean by that is if the young people can do that to the pe- people in positions of authority, why should they kind of listen to you? And I suppose that has changed from historical because historically, pre-internet, that wouldn't have been something that really we could easily have done. Would have been, yeah. We're we're living in revolutionary times. There's there's no mm. way we could have done that. And I mean, if you look at all the research as well, um, in terms of authority, um, and in terms of people obeying people in authority, we're living in a time where trust between uh, those that are in positions of power and those who are not is at an all time low. Um, the Pew Center, which is a research uh, a think tank in America, looked at mm. or charted how much faith people had in their government. And there's a similar trend in the UK as well. So if you look around, they, they started this in the 1920s. And if you uh, and they asked respondents, how much do you trust the government? If the government gave you an instruction, would you follow it? So the highest, yeah. point, as you probably would guess, would be around World War Two. It was about 80 percent. So eight out of 10 people said yeah. if the government gave them an instruction they would follow it and not question it and you know they stayed more or less the same but what you will notice is that come nixon which was in forgive my history i think it was 1970s i'm sure the Nixon, the whole watergate scandal it fell off a cliff it the trust in government really fell off a cliff and i think it went down to 50 percent. and what you will notice is that it's gone down and down and down i think to an all-time low of about 20 percent um, of you know, two out of ten uh, ten people will trust what the government is telling them, and I'm sure you've seen this with all the conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. So, well, it's yeah. I mean, there's what I have found fascinating recently, actually, living amidst COVID nineteen, is that actually I'm pretty sure X number of years ago, if we were told that we had to abide by this, that, and the other, we would have done. But now. It's it's really interesting that people hear the government saying, you must abide by this, and them just going, yeah, they can, but I'm not. Mm. And it, as you say, it's a really interesting one around authority mm-hmm. and around how much we will actually respect the authority of others. Mm-hmm. So that being the case then, where do teachers start? 
I think what we have to recognize as teachers is we've got to move from the diadeic slash, so, you know, just standing there and telling the kids what to do to what I call trust-based influence, mm-hmm. where we use tactical empathy to basically influence our young people. And I spell this out in the book, what that looks like. A good teacher now needs a, co- a combination of two elements. One is authority, yeah. but not in the way that people think about authority. And one is warmth. So let me break that down super quickly. Authority mm. is often, when we think of authority, we think of or an authoritative person. We think of, you know, uh, people like Adolf Hitler, Gaddafi. Mm. We think of Vladimir Putin. All mm-hmm. like frightening images of authority where, you know, you, 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 know, you will obey me. Right, but authority—that's one element of authority. But there's also element, other elements of authority. So, for example, mm-hmm. if somebody is really good at something, i.e., a doctor, you would say that person yeah. is an authority on their subject. If somebody spoke yeah. clearly and they're respected, they are an authority, and that's the type of authority that we need to lean into. Now, within authority, there's something called positional authority, which, mm-hmm. which we call the external. It's the external status, basically. It's, you know, a position, a title, if you're the prime minister of the UK or the mayor of London, those are positions of authority. People can see it, people, you know, and you have to obey that. But there's also something called personal or moral authority. And Mm. this is not so external. This is more internal. This is about your character. This is about your beliefs, your values. So if you look at people like Martin Luther King, who, in terms of a job, he was a pastor of a, a medium-sized church in Atlanta. Yeah. Not a politician. He was not a, I don't know, a, a, somebody that worked in finance. But because of the strength of his vision and because of his moral principles, he became this authority, this voice. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, before he became president. These are guys that have a huge uh, moral authority or personal authority. And they used that and wielded it for the good of, of, of their people and humanity. Um, so I've got a question. Okay. Do you, so teachers of old as such, sure. yeah. were we reliant on positional authority and now we've had, we've got to shift into personal authority? I still believe that's a very good question. I believe. Oh, that- thanks. <laughs> I, like I do try. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I do believe that you have to have both. I mean, what I say yeah. to is that by you being a teacher, you've already got authority. Yeah. You've already got authority. Local, per, local, local, I always forget the Latin, local parentist. Parentist mm-hmm. basically means as soon as the child enters school, we have the same powers as a parent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you already have got that inbuilt. But if you're just going to lean on that, do as I say, you know what I mean? Be quiet. You're yeah. Not, I always say positional authority will get you to the door it's personal authority that allow you to go through and nice what these great leaders um, did they had that positional authority but they also had that personal touch that common touch that's why we still talk about people like nelson mandela that's why we still talk about people like lady diana because Mm. they had the ability to have this you know to have this position of authority but also use it in a way which made other people feel good. And that goes into what we call warmth, which is basically empathy, um, empathy, the ability uh, and emotional intelligence. And great teachers need to have that. So again, as I said, you need to have the to be able to wield your power uh, in a in an effective way, that's your authority, but also have that empathy and have that emotional intelligence 
in knowing and understanding who you're dealing with. And that's what will make a great teacher. God, that's I, that, that's very good. You should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think about that for you. I'll think about it. No, that's, I, I really love what you said there because, yes, that makes complete and utter sense. It really does. Now, I know that you and I have talked about the power of the digital age, the, the digital revolution that you've talked about, actually, and the way that that has changed our young people. So can we talk a bit about that now for our listeners? Sure. I think it's really powerful. Sure. I think I, I've come up with a term. And basically, we live in an age where we're teaching 21st century kids in mm. 18th century classrooms. Okay. If I had a time machine and I went back to Victorian England, and I spoke to a teacher and said, sir, please come with me to the future. I want you to see our classrooms. And I took him in my time machine and put him in a classroom. If you took away the whiteboard and the speakers and any other pieces of technology, the teacher from Victorian England, or the Victorian English period, should I say, would understand he's still in a classroom. He would still understand that they are textbooks and still understand their exercise books and probably would be able to pick up any of those and teach straight away. Okay. What I'm trying to say is that our method of teaching has more or less stayed the same or is, is, there's had very little disruption for about 200 years. But we're living in a revolutionary time. Uh, and I was, as I was saying to you before, um, Toria, I believe, I genuinely believe that we are looking at the, the end of the industrial period, the industrial mm-hmm. revolution. And now 2020 has given birth to the digital age. It's come it's it's, it's now come to maturity. Everything's gone digitized. In the space, if we look between what's happened in March to now, in the space of six months, in fact, I'll I'll give a saying, I can't remember who said it, but there was somebody in education that said, COVID-19 has pushed digital education 20 years, right? In the space of... And it really has. It has has absolutely altered the way teachers, it's made me as a teacher do things that never in a million years did I consider that I would have to do or that I would have been able to do. Exactly. And what he was saying was, I uh, I need to find his name, but what he was saying was Mm. he went, he had a a piece of software and he was going to all the head teachers and going to all the local authorities and saying, look, this would be great to do teaching and whatnot. And they just didn't want to listen, said, no, that's we're not interested in that. Soon as coronavirus hit, they were banging on his door saying, oh, you had that little thing. Do you remember what it is? For, you know, tell us about it again. And he said that in a weird way, look at things like Zoom. I never heard of Zoom before. Oh, no. <laughs> now, you know, we're all, you know, we're all disciples of Zoom. Um, well, it's fascinating. No one ever says to you, oh, shall I phone you? They go, shall I Zoom you? Exactly. And you're like, oh, let's let's Zoom. And it is, it's fascinating that, you know, today I've Zoomed people all over the world. Exactly. And actually a year ago, that wouldn't have even been in my mental remit, that I wouldn't have even known that that was possible. Exactly. You know, I really wish I did have a time machine because I'd talk to myself. I wouldn't even want to go back 10 years. I'll say to myself in 2019, Carl, everything you've got, all your savings into Zoom. What's Zoom? (laughs) (laughs) I'll be a multimillionaire by now. But it's as you said, we are now doing things as educators that we never thought we could do. And the whole world, and it's not only education, the whole world has been turned upside down and it's never going to Mm. go back to normal. In fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day 
um, with uh, it had somebody from LinkedIn, IBM, and they're all discussing the future. And they were saying that the 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 the, the way of we we used to work before in the office is died, in the sense that yeah. a lot of big companies are saying, you know, we're going to sell off our office space because for the foreseeable future, people won't be able to go into the office. So we've had to change our whole way of working and our whole way of doing things. And if, if us as educators are still you know, putting our head in the sand saying, oh, you know, the way we educate people uh, is not going to change. We, we, we're in serious trouble because what they were also talking about was, um, you know, 90% of jobs, this, this blew my mind. They're saying that in the next 10 years, 90% of jobs that will be advertised don't even yet exist. That's They're mental. Yet, right. And they're saying, how are we training our young people to go into these jobs. And if you think about it, the things that have, you know, taken over the, our culture, Amazon, only 20 years old, okay? Mm. Um, Facebook, 15 years old. Snapchat and Instagram, about six or seven years old. Zoom, two years old, or two, three years old, should I say. Look how they have changed our whole landscape. And we have got to look at the way that we're, we're educating our kids because I'm not, um, I, I, I was about to say not being funny, um, I don't want to come across as a person that's, you know, rubbishing education. I'm not. I love education. That's why I'm mm. education because I'm passionate about it. But we now have to say we have to look at the way that we're educating and, and preparing our young people for the changes that are happening. And we're not even talking about Brexit and climate change because we. the danger is this will be a generation of young people that will be lost. They're saying that this is the first, the millennial uh, and Generation Z are the first generation since World War II to be worse off than their parents, i.e. not being able to afford their own homes, um, not being able to have long-term stable employment. You know, These things have serious repercussions on, on mental health, self-image, and the economy. If we look at um, like the gig economy, people, are, you know, they're saying that a person might, well, I'm a, a millennial, they're saying that I'll have eight careers before I retire, whereas somebody who was a boomer or somebody who was born just after World War II might stay in the same job for 30 or 40 years because it's not because we want to change. It's because of the instability of the market. And I'm, I'm very passionate that we need to start upskilling our young people. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the only way that we can upskill our young people is by ensuring that we are upskilling ourselves as educators, which is why I'm so passionate about connecting globally with other ed educators and learning from other people because I think as long as we reflect internally and are just thinking about what we are doing at our school I'm not looking outward and therefore I'm not going to give the children that I'm teaching the very very best education that I can because you are absolutely right mm. I am not teaching the same children that I was teaching 10 years ago mm. I'm not even teaching the same children I was teaching five years ago exactly and as I said um, before, we will look at this period of time the same way we studied the 1920s um, with the Great Depression, the same way we studied the 1930s mm -hmm. with the rise of the Nazi Party, 1940s, World War, World War II. We are going to be looking back in 100 years' time. Uh, you know, People will be looking and studying this period. And there are going to be winners and losers. And another thing that people do not realise is automation. Um, a lot of the jobs that are being lost, so if you look at Marks and Spencer's, 7,000 jobs have gone. 7,000 yeah. between now and Christmas. It's frightening. And it's frightening. Um, John Lewis, I think, are, again, I'll probably be fact-checked, but it's between a third or half of their stores John Lewis are closing. John Lewis has been around for 200 years, okay? Um, wonderful company. 
And I'll give a quick story about this. I went into Superdry as soon as the loft- lockdown restrictions were lifted. Uh, me and my wife went to Superdry because I just wanted to do some retail, you know, some window shopping. Um, and yes, I looked, you do. <laughs> as you do. And I looked at the jumper and I went to go and touch it. And then the um, the sales assistant was like, um, you know, you can't try these um, jumpers on. Yeah. And I, I looked at the person. I said, what? And he said, you can't try them on because of COVID. And I said, so how am I meant to know if it fits or whatnot? He said, well, you, should, you can look at it, but you can't touch it. And I walked out of the store of my missus and I said, I'm just going to go on Amazon. That that person's lost them a sale because I'm, I'm just going to go on Amazon. I could do the same thing and get it. For and, you know, the reason why these jobs like the Marks and Spencers and so, you know, Jeff Bezos now has become the, the richest man in, in modern history, 200 billion pounds. And people forget that uh, two years ago, he divorced his wife and lost a third of his, his profit. And his wife now is the richest woman in the world, uh, Mackenzie Bezos. The reason being is because when we were all in lockdown, the only place that was delivering was Amazon. So yeah. Amazon is the biggest store in the world. So what I'm saying is if you're looking in the retail sector, those jobs are not coming back. Um, if you're looking at the music industry and the creative industries and they're talking about, you know, Rishi Sunak was saying, you know, everybody in those industries might have to consider retraining. Um, and, you know, people are horrified. But if you look at how musicians make their money, musicians make their money by touring. But if you can't tour, then you can't make money. So we're looking at, you know, I, I know coronavirus is terrible, but we've also got to look at the economy and the way things are going. There's a huge, huge shifts and we've got to prepare our kids. Absolutely. The world has turned on its head. It really has. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny. You know, a year ago, and this is true, this, I didn't know what a blog was Mm. and I didn't know what a podcast was. Wow. And now I have a blog and I have a podcast and I spend a lot of time blogging and podcasting. And I I didn't even really join Twitter properly until January 2020. No way. That's this year. Yeah, no joke. And, uh, you know, my life is spent so very, very involved in the digital world. And so I totally get what you're saying. And actually, if that can, if that can happen to me in such a quick amount of time, Mm -hmm. of course, it's going to happen. That's where our children are. Our children are living in that world. And, and it's, we've got to really consider it. Um, And I think the other thing that I have found surprising in a way is the fact that we, we have learned to connect, but we've learned to connect virtually. And we've got so used to connecting virtually actually that it's yes, I miss going out and seeing people, but I'm still getting that fix. And, and I don't know, whether I want to go back out and do the things that I used to do. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, I think it's all about adaption. I mean, yeah. I, what I've said sounds really, really negative, but there's a, there's a flip side to this in the sense mm-hmm. that if you think about, for example, the world's billionaires, if you went again a mm-hmm. hundred or so years ago, you look at people like Andrew Carnegie, you look at people like Rockefeller, you look at all these barons that were the billionaires of their time, you could be a billionaire off the back of land, oil, and steel. Those are the yeah. only ways you can make money. But if you look at some of the world's top billionaires, if you, you know, again, it boggles my mind. Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire by building a website, something that is not tangible. I can't, I can hold oil. I can put my finger on oil. I can hold steel. I can yeah. hold oil. But somebody made it some, you know, Mark Zuckerberg made a website which was electronic, which no one can, you know, really touch. And he's a billionaire. 
Now, it's not about money, but what I'm saying is that we have to, I'm looking at the positives in the sense of, like you said, you, Toria, have got fantastic digital skills now. You could probably walk into a company if you if you packaged it on your CV mm. properly and people could be paying you a lot of money because a lot of companies still are struggling with converting their business, you know, from, from you know, the old school way of doing things to the digital mm. age, you know. And these are the things, so things like Google, what Google have said is that they don't, they're not considering degrees, uh, traditional degrees, because they're saying that by the time you learn the coding language, it's already obsolete because it's moving so quickly. So what they're doing wow. is they're doing a special type of induction where, you know, they're testing your practical skills, but what they mm. would do, they'll put you on like a pathway of continuous learning. So it would take like a year, but it's a very practical, um, so just, I don't know, website design, right? You'll be learning and the people that are marking your actual, you know, work are people that work at the job with you. So, and they said it's the equivalent of a degree, you know? These are the things we need, you know, another thing we need to do. Somebody said a really good idea. Instead of having like a three-year degree, why don't we get some young people and, you know, just train them and they hit modules. So as they're working, they're learning, well, it's an apprenticeship, but it's a digital version where it's almost like, you know, they can do it in their own leisure. People do this anyway, but these are the things, models that we have to move to. Rather than getting a child or a person to go to a physical location, to a university, and sit there, you know, why don't we do that? You know, why don't we do, you know, why don't it become an ongoing process? Which I'm trying, that's what I'm trying to say. These are the things yeah. that we need to really, really look at. Because as I said before, if we go with this 18th century model that we're using, we're going to have a lot of disillusion. And it's not, not only our kids that are becoming disillusioned, adults that have gone through the whole university experience and they've come out with degrees and they can't find jobs. And that is so heartbreaking that, you know, they've spent all this time, they've worked hard, they've done everything that they've been told to do, but they still cannot get that satisfaction because they don't have that cultural capital. And as I said, if, if you are coming from a certain background, a middle class or upper class background, you know, the degree path is, you know, is fantastic for you because you've got those connections, you know, the right people, you know, your face might fit depending on your gender or your race or your sexuality. But for those who are outside of that, they're going to have a lot tough, a, a lot more of a tougher time. So we've sold them the dream of, you know, getting this degree and, all, you know, and, you know, your life is going to be perfect and you'll be able to purchase a home. And then they got their degree and, you know, nothing's happen, happening for them. It's heartbreaking. We've got to look at a, a different model. I think you're right. I really do. And I think you're absolutely... You're so true in saying that actually we are in the midst of a revolution. We are in the midst of a complete change. The world has sort of tilted on its side and we need to make sure that we are doing something about it and not sitting there going, yeah, it'll get normal again because actually this is, this is it and we need to do something about it. Um, so I ask everyone this and you've had enough time to think about it now because I did pre-warn you. <laughs> if if you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Oh, that's a very, very good question. Can I cheat and say a couple of people? Do you know what? Everyone does. Everyone on the podcast just cheats. No one ever goes with one person. Everyone goes with multiple and then goes, oh, I'm just really sorry. So just do it, you know, go for it. Um, okay. A couple of um, left field ones. One of the guys I would love to have met is a guy called Marcus Aurelius. Um, mm -hmm. A, a, Ooh, Roman, nice. a Roman emperor 
and yeah. basically one of the founding fathers of a, uh, a way of thinking called stoicism. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my favorite quotes, and this is the thing that really I live by, is the impediment to action is the action. The obstacle is the way. And basically it's a stoic saying, basically saying that what you might think is difficult or what you might think is hard, if you look at it close enough at it, you would basically you can find a flip side to it. And that's something that's always helped me in my life. Um, so Marcus Aurelius would be one. Nelson Mandela, absolutely one of my heroes. Love to have met him and spoken spoken to him, but asked him some really tough questions. Not the you know typical nice questions, but the really tough questions as well. Love to um, hear his wisdom. There's a guy called Ryan Holiday. Absolutely love him. He's an author. He's still alive. Quite a young guy. And he wrote one of my favorite books called The Obstacle is the Way. That's where I got that saying from, all about Stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe Khalil Gibran. Uh, I think he was a Sufi poet. Love his poetry. Yeah. Uh, Khalil Gibran. And Paolo Coelho, I think it's my last one. Paolo Coelho, he wrote a beautiful hey, book. Can I just say, you're not meant to be creating an entire school here. No, you sorry. Just, you meant to go for one teacher. You've got an entire school. <laughs> this is 21st digital thinking. It's not just about one way. It's like ways. Oh, okay. Carl, you have been a delight to talk to. You truly have. For those people that aren't sure where to find you, how to uh, how to find you, give them some signposts. What's your blog? What's your Twitter handle? And what's your book? No problem. So the best way to find me is go to my website, www.actionheroteacher.com. That will have a link to my my book. Again, if you go to Amazon, it will be there as well. Um, I'm most active. My two social medias that I'm most active on is uh, Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram is at actionheroteacher, all one word. And my Twitter is at actionheroteach. You wouldn't allow me to have the ER, so it's actionheroteach. But if you go to my website, um, my blog's there, and just, yeah, just say hello. And, uh, you know, you can argue with me if you want. Twitter's very good for that. People have been arguing with me a lot of late. So please, actually, don't argue with me. Just come and say hello. (laughs) (laughs) Carl, you really have been a delight to talk to, and you have left me thinking about so many things. And I cannot wait to see where you go to next so have a fantastic rest of your day thank you very much thank you for having me